Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, on today's podcast, we are talking with Dr. Lawrence Ralph, who is a professor of anthropology at Princeton University. Uh, He's the author of Renegade Dreams, Living with Injury in Gangland, Chicago, and of a new book, The Torture Letters, Reckoning with Police Violence, which is about uh, the torture in Chicago that was uncovered. Um, And it's written uh, in a really interesting way as a series of open letters um, to different people who are connected with those torture cases. Uh, Lawrence Ralph, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks. Thanks for having me for now. Um, You know, I I remember reading your first book and, you know, I think you're such a great writer. And it was interesting to read this book because it's uh, organized as a series of open letters, everything from uh, Superintendent Eddie Johnson uh, to Doris Byrd to the late William Lacey, just different people who were connected uh, to um, torture and police violence uh, in Chicago uh, during really a 50-year period. I wanted to ask you, why did you decide, even before getting into what this book is about, to write and organize it um, in this way? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was mostly because of the subject itself. Um, you know, as an anthropologist and as a research and write, researcher and a writer, I always try to like do justice to the different projects I'm interested in and think about what is the best way to convey the messages that I'm receiving and and the information that I'm learning. And I think in this case, I had to grapple with that problem while also wrestling with the question of torture. And torture is such a difficult thing to write about because, you know, like violence more generally, there's a way in which you can write about it and contribute to a kind of voyeurism and a kind of spectacle that you're trying to critique at the same time. And so how do you write about the spectacle of torture without reproducing it? That's that's one of the biggest questions, the biggest challenges of the book. And so letters came about because as I was doing the research, I thought a lot about what made something voyeuristic or not. And when I was talking to people who had been impacted by torture, it never felt voyeuristic. And I I started to think about why that was. I think why that was is because there was a purpose, there was an intent, there was an intentionality about why we were discussing something. If we were talking about the marks on someone's body it was because those marks had become important for a court case. They had become evidence. They had allowed torture survivors to see each other within a wider network and gain recognition. And so I wanted my message to be purposeful. And so the thing about letters is that 
they're addressed to a particular purpose person. They have a particular message. They have a particular intent. And it kind of kept me on track in allowing to write about torture without reproducing the spectacle of it. Who is John Birch? Because he plays such a huge role here. And we'll talk about Anthony Wilson and Doris Bird and some, there's so many indelible um, characters that you sketch out here in this book. But who is John Burge and why is he so important um, to now the whole history of Chicago, the city? Yeah, I mean, I, I got introduced to John Burge when I was doing research for my first book, which was on gang violence. And the issue of policing, you know, obviously came about, came up. And the issue of police shootings was a a hot topic in in that moment before, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement where, you know, kids were getting gunned down in the street by police officers being shot in the back. And people were talking about this and there was a heavy skepticism about whether or not, you know, police officers would be held accountable. And a lot of the reason why people were saying that police officers wouldn't be held accountable was because of John Burge. So John Burge kept coming up in these public meetings as someone who basically you know, had lived a life of impunity. People knew he had done horrific things. It was widely publicized that he had been accused of torturing criminal suspects, and yet nothing happened to him. And so there's a part of your question when you're asking me about who is John Burge. Part of it is just like that, that larger than like, folklore, there's a sense in which John Burge is basically the boogeyman in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's another sense of who he actually is as a police commander. And so he was a police commander of uh, Area 2 and Area 3 precinct in Chicago in the 80s and 90s. And so he was um, widely decorated. He was a Vietnam vet. And he, you know, was a, basically the ringleader of a torture operation in which criminal suspects would be brought into the precinct um, and he either tortured them himself or oversaw their torture with a select few of officers that he trusted. Sometimes they're called the midnight crew because they Uh, operated under the cover of darkness. Sometimes they're called the Uh, A-Team. You have a great, you have a great, (laughs) great uh, disquisition on the the A-Team. It it reminded me of my youth. You get us back to B.A. Baracus and Hannibal. (laughs) And uh, I I thought that was great. I'm so into popular culture where you really get into uh, the television A-Team and then sort of juxtapose that against what, um, what Burge and his team did. Right. I mean, I think there's a large part of it in in just our culture where, 
we learn to accept torture. And we don't even realize it, um, how ingrained it is in our psyche. But just to see police officers transgressing the law in a way because we've already deemed the people who they're chasing down to be the enemy and the bad guy. And I think that's the kind of logic that allowed torture to, to pervade the streets of Chicago for so long. And you talk about the black box in, uh, very poignantly in the open letter to Chicago's youth of color. What was the black box? And, um, you know, in this letter, you talk about, you know, basically trying to imbue hope, uh, but also giving them sort of the depth and breath and sketching out what what so many youth of color face in a city like Chicago. What was the black box under under Burge and why is that so significant? Yeah, so the black box is really, you know, it's a it's a device, a torture device, literally, but it's also a metaphor uh, for what I'm trying to get at when we think about how to understand police torture. And so in terms of the the actual torture device, I think it relates to the kind of the militarization of the police and the way that police violence isn't just a domestic problem, it's a global problem. It has to do with the way that we are thinking about security internationally. And so I mentioned before that John Burge was a a Vietnam vet. And so uh, it is rumored that um, he gained knowledge of how to torture people from his experience in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, um, the military would take these telephones and rewire them into torture device with the uh, with the electricity exposed in in putting it on people who they wanted to extract information from. And so the black the black box in Chicago is a similar kind of device in that it is an electrical device with a hand crank. And when you crank the device, it sends electricity, shots of electricity to the victim who's attached to it. And that was a, a major breakthrough of these torture cases because the marks that they left on the body were so unique that it became hard to deny that what people were describing uh, as what happened to them was just made up because they could prove that these marks were were created from an electrical current that um, scarred them for life. And numerous people had these same marks. So then this is how, through court evidence, we can see a, a community of torture survivors begin to emerge. Now, why do I say that the black box is also a metaphor? It's because it stands in for everything that we cannot know about police violence. There's a lot of things that we cannot know. Even the black box itself, it's recreated uh, from 
how what the victims described and what police officers who worked with John Bird saw. But the the actual device itself is disappeared. There's Burge. Uh, there's people who say Burge threw it into Lake Michigan. Mm. And so how do we piece together information? How do we discuss what is unknowable? How do we then recreate the scene of a crime when the evidence doesn't exist in a material fashion? Those are questions I pose because oftentimes we don't have those things that are necessary, that we deem necessary in a court of law. All we have is people's word. All we have is the way that they describe what happened to them. And all we have is a choice. Do we refuse to give officers the benefit of the doubt and believe the community? Or do we continue to give officers the benefit of the doubt and allowed what happened to them to disappear into a black box? And, and that's a major question I pose in the book. Now, in part two, you look at the what you call the B team, uh, but I think of the B team as Burge in the city of Chicago, and you write about this in terms of capitalism and how torture was good for people's careers. But even people who tried to resist Burge and sometimes were transferred to other stations. You talk about Doris Byrd and other people, and William Lacey, uh, one of the first uh, Chicago police officers um, who came on the force in 1957 when there were less than 100 officers out of 10,000. But it seems that Burge and torture and the prerogatives of capitalism or racial capitalism set up these supply chains of power and privilege and then misery and grief. And when you look at the B team, you see that it's larger than just the A team of the five or six people that Burge really counted on. It seems like uh, one of the things that Lacey recounts is in 1973, uh, uh, walking in on Burge torturing somebody uh, against a smoking hot radiator at a station, but all these other detectives are just um, typing away. And for interrupting, he's later demoted and sort of humiliated, and you have a very moving letter to him. Um, but let's talk about that, the B team. What do you mean by that? And what's going on there where you go beyond sort of Burge as this bad guy and look at the real sort of structural problems that led for this to happen and for people to actually be promoted to make money by torturing people, to have higher public standing, the superintendents, uh, all the, Burge becomes the commander, but all the administrators who let this happen. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think this part of the book that you're talking about is really about power and complicity and the relationship between those things. And I think when we think about torture, uh, it's easy to vilify Burge and say, oh, he was just, you know, a psycho, a lot of people say, and he was just crazy or he was a bad apple, you know, and the people <laughs> who work with him are also bad apples. But then the question becomes, okay, how did this happen you know, how did torture become an open secret for decades then, you know? And so what we see when we 
ask that bigger question about secrecy, about what people knew at the time, is that even people who weren't close to Burge were made to feel intimidated by him. And so what I described with the B team, who is a group of black officers who were basically marginalized in the force. And they were in this position, this, you know, really hard position of being tokenized at times, being, you know, regarded as exceptional professionals on the other hand, but not, you know, giving, get, getting the credit for what they did and not being able to rise within the ranks. And so oftentimes they felt like they couldn't, you know, blow the whistle. But what I describe is not merely an absence um, or just sitting on their hands and refusing to do something. What I describe is a active learning to know what not to know. They have to learn how to navigate their space without getting any more knowledge of torture. Because if they do get knowledge of torture, then they are conflicted heavily. Then they have to act. So they avoid birds. They hear the rumors, but they don't go in when he's uh, working the midnight shift. They hear the rumors, they hear noises, but they don't go into those rooms where they hear the noises coming out of. And in doing this, in burying their heads in the sand in this way, they are allowed to stay in the force because they see what happens when people blow the whistle and their careers are destroyed. And so when we think about power and complicity, it's not just about the people who are doing evil things. It's about how we learn to know what not to know about that, how we learn to navigate our world by turning the other way, how we believe that if it isn't us, doing the torture, then we are somehow absolved. But this is how torture was allowed to grow. This is how it grew from a few people to hundreds of people over the course of a decade. And this is how people, as you said, rose within the ranks. Because after a while, it became not just about protecting Burge, but protecting everyone who could have had any kind of knowledge about torture. And so the the district attorney who heard allegations of torture in the 1970s and 1980s, but didn't say anything, he also rose up the ranks. Mm. That district attorney eventually became a judge. And when he was a judge, he didn't hear any cases about torture because that would implicate implicate him or that district attorney then becomes the mayor. And when they become the mayor, they squash or try to squash uh, the political mobilizations around torture because they're also implicated. And so when we have these kinds of injustices, they become systemic 
because the people who are in close orbit to them also become implicated in the scandal. And when I read that part, too, I also thought about this idea of um, somehow black cops or representation could save us in the criminal justice system. (laughs) And I saw that in a real devastating way. uh, What you show in the torture letters is that's just not true and it's not even possible. Um, And it doesn't mean these black people were bad people, but you show how they really get caught up in a system of self-preservation that ultimately wreaks real harm on black communities. Exactly. Thank you for that. Now, I thought part three was um, very hopeful. Uh, and it, it could be because I know the history of African-Americans charging genocide, um, uh, whether it's William Patterson or uh, Malcolm X and other uh, NAACP towards the United Nations. But let's talk about the, the eight students that you, you describe and characterize in terms of charging genocide. And you, you, you have a great open letter to the late William Patterson who did the 1951 We Charge Genocide a petition, uh, United Nations charging the United States with uh, human rights violations. And, and let's, um, in your, you open it with this letter to Josephine Grayson. And I want you to talk about uh, part three because I thought this was very, very hopeful that you had young people who were this organized and this trenchant and this resilient to actually, you know, fight back in this way. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I think um, just to go back to to where we started, I think when we talk about not reproducing the spectacle of torture uh, in it of itself without a purpose, I think part of that has to do with uh, how we talk about activism as well, or if we talk about activism as well, because it can seem totalizing when we think about how long people have suffered and how deeply they suffered in terms of police violence. And so we also have to ask the question, what have communities done to mobilize against these forces. And, you know, doing that's important because it shows that the forces aren't, you know, that destruction isn't inevitable, that it isn't total, that there are kind of lines of flight that people can imagine in terms of um, seeking liberation. And there's also a long tradition of that. And so in part three, I describe, you know, what can be called a contemporary We Charge Genocide movement because it draws on the 1951 petition uh, with William Patterson in which, you know, it's eerily similar to what is going on today about thinking about white supremacy and police violence and the political infrastructure of the United States that allows this to happen. And so in 1951, you know, a group of activists go to the UN and talk about these issues on an international stage. And inspired by that, 
you know, that call for really, you know, a, a language to discuss disproportional punishment in the U.S. and its disproportionate impact on African-Americans. And really, with the goal of shaming the U.S. on an international stage, in, in 2014, you know, a group of activists from Chicago do the same thing. They create a petition in order to go to the UN uh, and charge genocide. And the group itself is called We Charge Genocide After the 1951 Petition. And part three discusses the trip. It discusses, it kind of tacks back and forth between key actors in the 1951 petition, like Josephine Grayson, whose husband was um, charged with raping a white woman and then put to death. And it talks about those issues of the death penalty, the disproportionate impact on African-Americans and kind of political mobilizations around them with the goal of pointing to the contradiction between a rhetoric of democracy and um, a systematic annihilation of Black bodies, on the other hand. And they also, uh, you talk about um, the STOPS Transparency Oversight and Protection Act. These these young people were really interested in policy, uh, right. really interested in... in um, and so I, I want to ask, how effective have they been uh, subsequently, because they they seem like they were they were doing these these great things, um, and I and I know there's you know there's been some policy transformations which I do want to talk to you about. But this specific group from Part Three, we charge genocide. Um, how effective do you think they they were? They're they're organizing. Um, I mean, I think it's uh, it's is continues to be effective. Um, you know, Chicago has a very rich tradition of uh, grassroots organization and activism. And a lot of the um, people who were in that original group are some of the leaders of the current movements right now going on, um, like Paige May with the Sada's Daughters, uh, around just trying to think about uh, abolition and defunding. And so I think, and also now kind of mentoring and growing the next generation of young activists in Chicago. And so I think those lessons are vitally important and the work continues um, on a, you know, uh, expansive scale. And I say that because I think without that that work uh, in 2014, what's going on now in terms of organizing around uh, the possibility of abolition wouldn't be possible for, for them. And now in part four with bad guys, uh, you really um, even set where you look at uh, past presidents and the way in which they vilified um, Muslims and this idea that we're always in search 
of bad guys. And I know on the streets now, there's a um, term which I love, uh, copaganda instead of propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in a lot of ways, the torture letters really moves away from that copaganda where the cops are always right and they're the good guys so they can torture and kill and murder and maim people and everything's fine because they're protecting they're protecting the society, especially against black people. But I want you to um, explain to us, what do you mean by bad guys and how how does the construction of that term bad guys on multiple levels, because you really go from the local to the global, impact torture and police violence and, and this criminalization against black communities in Chicago, but also elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, how we construct the other in order to kind of justify um, occupation, brutality, um, killing, injuring in the name of the quote unquote greater good. I mean, I think that's the core of the idea uh, with these the bad guys part, how we need bad guys in order to uh, perpetuate an idea of safety that's premised on killing people and is premised on force. And I think for me, it's important to frame in that way because um, we have to see it outside of just the politics of race in the U.S. as they manifest, uh, because it then we get trapped in the 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 discourse and the histories of racism in our particular country, and aren't able to see the way that these same tactics are of policing are impacting the globe, and so even if you know magically we can wave a wand and say you know the police won't brutalize any more black people they won't kill any more black people next year i just waved a wand i don't think that solves the problem because then we can just look for another bad guy to crucify then it becomes um the people who just came over the border that we need to separate from their families, you know? And there's a danger of then black people becoming implicated in that structures of, of annihilation. And so we have to kind of eradicate the notion that uh, bad guys in any kind of whatever shape and form they come in are not worthy of protection and not worthy of rights. And we can just um, suspend those rights in, in our own search for safety as a country. And so part of the reason why I want to show that is because the way that police violence manifests itself in the U.S. is borrowing from all of these other operations in which our country 
is searching for bad guys all over the world. And that's particularly important when it comes to the war on terror. We've refined our techniques of repression and occupation uh, from the war on terror. And we're kind of, there's a pendulum that's swinging back and forth between the U.S. and all these other places that we've occupied in the recent decades. And that's making police power become even more entrenched. And the, the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, we can see that in how Portland is looking, how Kenosha is looking, uh, where there are these military tactics that are taking place in American soil that are, yes, disproportionately impacting Black people, but those tactics were refined by occupying the enemy abroad. And so we have to see how those relationships are connected. Now, you conclude with uh, a very poignant open letter to the late Andrew Wilson. Who was Andrew Wilson? And I would also say, who was Marcus Wiggins? Because that's very, very important, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I kind of begin and end with Andrew Wilson because I think the case of Andrew Wilson really tests the reader. So Andrew Wilson is a black man who in 1982 was accused of killing two police officers. What ensued after that was a manhunt, which was at the time the largest manhunt in the history of Chicago, in which Black communities were occupied and and really harassed, and people were brutalized in the search for the, the quote-unquote cop killer. And Andrew Wilson was taken in by Burge and tortured. And it was Andrew Wilson who, with the help of the People's Law Office in Chicago, a really famous... Um, law firm dedicated to civil rights and social justice. Um, they worked with Andrew in order to bring these allegations of torture to light. And ultimately, it was the Andrew Wilson case that created the legal standard that allowed for other people to make claims that they had been tortured too. I start with Andrew Wilson because I don't know if he killed those police officers. And I think that we have a tendency in the U.S. to really look for the clean example, the person who was above reproach, the person who was innocent and wrongly accused and who suffered horrific things as a result. But I want to challenge, again, the good guy versus bad guy kind of tropes that we've put in our cultural psyche. The question is, even if Andrew Wilson did do it, does he still deserve to be tortured? And I say that because the way that 
Burge was allowed to get away with torture is by vilifying Andrew Wilson and saying that he was a cop killer and saying that he was a criminal and saying that he would always be a criminal. So if we allow torture to be excused because we believe the person is bad, then how do we stop someone like Bird from torturing again? How do we confine it to those people who seem to be deserving? And so that's really the kind of heart of the book. I mean, it comes down to a simple premise, theoretically, that no one ever deserves to be tortured no matter what they've done. But when we look at the history of the U.S., we see that that premise is really difficult to hold on to. That premise really divides people. That premise, you know, excuses systematic violence and abuse. And so I want to keep that example because despite what Andrew Wilson may have done or may not have done, what ensued is hundreds upon hundreds of people being tortured. And without Andrew Wilson, those people would have been in the shadows for we don't know how long, maybe forever. And so he plays a crucial role in our history in understanding the impact and effects of police torture. All right, my final question, I wanna move us to the present and this year of 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, the murder of George Floyd, and really even recently, the police police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, subsequent protests and and vigilante white supremacist murders of of protesters, uh, in this case, white protesters, um, on the eve of the March on Washington anniversary and the March on Washington 2020. Uh, how, you, how are you feeling as somebody who you've traveled to Geneva, you've done work in Chicago, you've, you've done so much research on... Um, not just police violence, but ending this police violence, but also this idea of repair, acknowledgement, um, uh, compensation as well, uh, both in Chicago and other spaces. How are you feeling now when we see these global protests for um, not just racial justice, but Black dignity, Black citizenship, really reimagining public safety, calls to abolish prisons, uh, defund the police, um, how are you feeling as somebody who works and has been in this space uh, for for a long time? How are you feeling about this present moment? Yeah, man. I mean, it's really it's really tough to grapple with the present moment. You know, as as you know, Peniel, uh, my first book, Renegade Dreams, deals with people who've been uh, paralyzed as a result of gun violence. And when I see what what happened with Blake, it just, it brings back 
you know, all of the people who I've come to know who've had that experience and I know what what's going on in his in his life right now and what will go on that long road of just you know learning a new body you know learning how to hold a fork learning how to uh, stay healthy and lift him off, lift himself off of his chair so he doesn't get ulcers. How his family probably will have to reorient themselves in order to provide for him in the long term. And it's a difficult, you know, it's a diff- really difficult time where a lot of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time are, are coming to a head. And I think it's a time where difficult things are being put on the table because it's impossible to ignore the social problems that we face today. what I hope is that people are seeing the human connections in this moment. I hope that people are connecting the pandemic to police violence and realizing that at the same time that police officers are equipped with every technology, state-of-the-art weaponry, and governmental support to enact deadly violence and suppress communities on a large scale, we can't get tests to everybody who needs them. Our schools can't open in person. Everyone doesn't even have masks. We don't know when our economy is gonna open again. People are homeless. We've experienced the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. And so these stark realities of inequality are manifesting themselves. Yet, what is being protected? Wealth and property and privilege is being protected in this moment, nevertheless. And so I think it, I hope this moment sheds a light on our priorities as a country. Not what people are saying, but what, what's actually being done, what we can observe with our eyes in terms of whose wealth is growing and who is becoming underprotected in this moment. And, you know, I hope that it will lead to a transformation in the way that we think about public safety and the way that we think about providing for everyone who needs protection. And that's 
economic protection, that's psychological protection. I think, you know, that that moment is it's becoming such that no one, you know, unlike, you know, what I'm describing in the book, you know, it's impossible to bury your head in the sand in this moment in American history. And so, you know, I hope that provides the opportunity for, for us to create a radical change in, in the way that our society works. Well, Lawrence, your your book and your work, your books, plural, and your work is a big part of uh, that hope and translating that hope um, into policy, into, into real life uh, transformations for both victims of torture, but also just all of us, our, our citizens, our undocumented, just all of us um, in this country and on this planet. So thank you for, for joining us. We've been having a terrific conversation with Lawrence Ralph, who is professor of anthropology at Princeton University. He's the author of Renegade Dreams, Living with Injury in Gangland, Chicago. Uh, he's also a good friend and, and uh, one of the most brilliant minds of his uh, generation and, and really of our, our, uh, our country. Um, his latest book, Everyone Should Get, it's out in paperback now, is The Torture Letters, Reckoning with Police Violence, um, and it really is this uh, transformative read about the history of torture in Chicago um, and the way in which um, that torture impacts not just the criminal justice system, but impacts American democracy. So Lawrence, Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Penel. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.